This morning, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to do a sermon, an entire single sermon on the book of Habakkuk. Uh, the book of Habakkuk is a book that is written at a time when the people are tremendously wicked. But it, what's fascinating is it's at, that, it's at that time during the revival of Josiah, King Josiah. All right? So it's at, the, at this time just before the Babylonian captivity. And... Um, the book is, is, uh, is fascinating because it relates the fact that the wickedness is driving the believer crazy and he's asking God to bring judgment on the wicked. And God's response is, sure, I'll do that. So I'm going to use the Babylonians to make that happen. And uh, the tussle, in essence, the challenge of faith that goes on because of this. How many of you see the wickedness in our world and it really bothers you? Hopefully that's all of us. We live in a very wicked world. It's not getting any better, okay? And we should be crying out to God and asking him to judge the wicked, all right? To really to do something. But we recognize that if God is going to do something, that his action in doing something could impact our lives, do you ever think about that? The fact that if God punishes wicked America, because we're pretty wicked, that that could impact our, your 401k, your retirement, your housing values, your own life. That, in essence, is what is going on in the book of Habakkuk. God is punishing wicked Israel by bringing in the Babylonians. So let's take a look at this text, <clears throat> because this text is very relevant for us in our day. It's interesting, by the way, that, uh, that this text was very relevant and important for the people at Qumran. The Qumran community saw in the book of Habakkuk text for themselves. They saw what was going on in the text as a parallel to their own time. The tremendous, wickedness going, the tremendous wickedness of the Second Temple period near the time of Yeshua, you know, where the high priest's position would literally be bought and sold, where people that may not even have been legitimate heirs to the position were given opportunities to serve if they had the right guilt, the right amount of money, right amount of influence. And so the Qumran community, God only knows who these people really were, but more than likely were priests, who had left the temple because of the corruption, saw in their own day the same parallel issues of corruption and sinfulness and wickedness that Habakkuk saw himself. And so uh, let's take a look at this text. We're on page 599 in the Congregational Tanakh. And I'm going to begin by reading the first couple of verses. It says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, Adonai, have I cried for help? Yet you do not hear. I cry out to you violence, yet you do not deliver. Why do you show me wickedness, and why must I behold mischief? Yes, devastation and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, Torah has no effect, and justice never goes forth. For the work wicked encircle the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. This again is being written during the revival of Josiah. And if you haven't read it, you should read the revival. It's at the end of 2 Kings and, and in the Second Chronicles. 
And what you notice is Josiah is zealous for the Lord. He is bringing all kinds of change and he is forcing it on the Jewish people. But I think most of them are not really interested. You know, when you, whenever you go to Israel and you look at uh, the Second Temple period, you, it's very interesting. I pointed this out. You will not find pig bones among the Israelis. You will not find pig bones. They ate kosher, but you will find, find idols in the Israeli areas. Interested in following God to an extent, but in reality, their hearts were far from God. Let's think about that for ourselves. Are our hearts really close to God or are they far from God? Josiah's heart was close to God, but he's leading a people whose hearts truly were actually still very far from God. In Habakkuk, by the way, his name probably means uh, embracer or lover of God. I think that's the idea. Because it's an unusual name. He's crying out to God, saying, God, do something. So I don't know. So God responds in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, look among the nations, observe, astonish yourself, be astounded, for work is being done in your days. You will not believe it if it were told. For I'm about to raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation, marching all over the land to seize dwellings not its own. Dreadful and terrifying, its justice and dignity derived from itself. Its horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Its horsemen come galloping. Its horsemen are coming from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping down to eat. In one sense, if you know, of course, Esther could get up here and teach all this ancient Near Eastern history stuff, but and she won't do it. But at the time, the Egyptians were a strong empire. At the time, the Assyrians were a strong empire. But out of nowhere comes the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar's father. I don't remember his name, but he rises up against the Assyrians and suddenly there's a shift in the politics, in, in the geopolitics of the time. Out of nowhere, the Babylonians arise and within a very short amount of time, they disrupt the political order as it's known. In fact, Josiah's death that occurs there in second, at the end of 2 Chronicles, 2 Kings is because the Egyptians are going north to help the Assyrians fight against the Babylonians at the Battle of Carchemish. Two old empires trying to maintain the old order. And for whatever reason, only God knows, Josiah decides that he will try to stop the Egyptians and is killed in the process. Maybe because a good king, God knew he was a good man and it was time for him to come to his reward because he was going to bring the judgment that Habakkuk is talking about now. Because these Babylonians come, they rise up, they disrupt everything, but God has a plan for them. And that is to punish wicked Israel. Take a look at verse 12. This is Habakkuk again. He says, are, you not, are, are not you from, a, uh, from antiquity, Adonai, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. Adonai, you have ordained him for judgment, as you, O rock, have established him to chasten. With eyes too pure to see evil, you cannot look at such trouble. Why do you look at the treacherous? Why do you remain silent when a wicked one swallows up those more righteous than him? Interesting. He's basically saying, you're going to use the Babylonians? You're going to use those wicked, 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 wicked Babylonians to punish wicked Israel? Think about it. Weigh it out. The Babylonians, they're terrible. Israel's wicked, but it's not that bad. Ah, but to whom much is given, much is required. Think about that when I think, I think about Keith Green. 
Well, much is given, much is required. The Babylonians were pagans. They didn't know God. The Israelis were supposed to know God. They were given the Torah. They were given God's instructions. They were given the prophets. And they weren't paying attention. So God says, all right, yeah, I'm going to use those wicked, wicked, wicked Babylonians. And they're going to discipline wicked Israel because that's the way it's to be. Continuing it on, uh, take a look at... um, uh, I'll just keep reading. Verse 14, you made men, you made man like the fish of the sea, like a creeping thing with no one ruling over him. He brings up with hook and jaw, drags away in his dragnet or gathers with his fishnet. Therefore, he rejoices with glee. Therefore, he sacrifices to his dragnet and offers incense to his fishing net. For through them, his portion is rich and his food abundant. Will he empty his net for this reason? Continuing slaying nations with no compassion. He's again adding on to the wickedness of these Babylonians. But then he says, chapter two, verse one, I will take my stand at my post and station myself on the rampart and I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer regarding my argument. So in other words, Habakkuk takes a moment and he finishes his argument with God. He argues with God. Have you heard anybody who says you should never argue with God? That person's never read the Bible. Abraham argues with God. It's the best example we can offer. But here's another one where Habakkuk literally is not in agreement with God regarding what he's about to do. But then, in chapter 2, verse 1, he he quiets himself down and he basically says, I'm going to stand at my post. Good chance he's a priest. I'm going to stand at my post and wait to see what God will do. He recognizes that God is God. You realize how important that is? To believe with all your heart, that the Lord, he is God. You cannot control your circumstances, but he can. If God allows good into your life, you're healthy, you've got a good job, you've got plenty of resources, you recognize that's all blessing from God? Do you thank him? Then when bad things come, do you get upset with God? Should we not remember that God gives and provides both that which is good and that which is not necessarily what we want, but there might be reasons for it? Now, I hate exercising. You all know that. But when you exercise, correct me, all you medical personnel, but when you exercise, especially lifting, you're using your muscles, you're in essence breaking them down a little bit, but that's how you build them up, right? Looking back, Eric is saying yes. God brings difficulties into our lives to force us to exercise our faith. It stretches and stresses our faith, but in the process, it builds up our faith. All God cares about is for your faith in relationship with him to grow. God is not interested in your personal comfort. That is not of interest to him. He's interested in the strengthening of your relationship with him. And we get into chapter 2, verse 2. Adonai responds, he says a couple of things. He says, And Adonai answered me and said, Write down the vision, make a plan on the tablet, so that the reader may run with it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. It hastens to the end and will not fail. If it should be slow in coming, wait for it, for it surely will come. It will not delay. If he is writing this in 507, I'm sorry, 607, the Babylonians capture or basically take over the area and make Judah a vassal state about 604. Anybody heard of Daniel? We're studying Daniel. Remember we talked about this? Daniel is 
in essence, a political prisoner taken to Babylon in around 604. Quickly. Quickly, God will act, but he always acts on his time. And he's saying, wait for it. But then, this amazing verse, chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Behold, the puffed up one, his soul is not right within him. Behold, the puffed up one, the prideful one. That's what they, the Hebrew word literally means a puffed up. It refers to the, you know, in essence, the parallel is the puffer fish. The puffer fish makes, him look a lot, makes himself look a lot bigger than he really is to scare off people around him. Pride is often something that we practice in order to feel better about ourselves and to project a better image of ourselves to others. A better image than is probably warranted. God says the puffed up one, the prideful one, his soul is not right within him. God hates pride. God hates pride. Something we all struggle with. God hates pride. He wants us to be honest humble people. But we tend to be prideful, arrogant people, drawing attention to ourselves and not pointing attention toward God. And then he says, but the righteous will live by his trust. That little phrase, the righteous will live by his trust, is an amazing phrase in the Hebrew. I've mentioned this before, I'll mention it again. The verse literally means the righteous in his faith he will live. The righteous in his faith, he will live. What does it mean to live in one's faith? What do you think that means? It means that on a day-to-day basis, as you go through your life, everything that you do, the, the values and priorities of your life are all seen as working through and by and for your relationship with God, your belief in Him. I always like the illustration. People have, to, especially when I go and preach about this at churches, I always use this illustration because they get it. In is a preposition. When I was a kid, I hated grammar, but I learned one thing. A preposition is anything a rabbit can do to a box. A rabbit can jump in the box, out of the box, over the box, through the box. It's anything a rabbit can do with a box. To live in our faith is to live in a box of faith. To get in the box and trust that no matter what happens to us, we are going to be in our faith and trust in the Lord our God, regardless of circumstances. Now you may say, what do you do in a box? You live your life in that box. There's a lot you can do in a box. It's a big box. You know what's amazing? God's box is massive. A lot of people stand outside the box and they look at it and they go, that's an amazing box. I think it's great that people can live in that box, but they themselves are unwilling to get in the box because it limits what they can do. Remember, if you're living in God's box of faith, there are things you can't do. You can't do whatever you want. You have to do what God wants. That's the first thing, right? Jump in the boxes to recognize that there are limitations to what we can do because, you know, some things don't please God. Walking our path doesn't please God. Walking his path pleases him. In Genesis chapter 15, you have the same Hebrew core words except in an opposite order. 
It says that Abraham, by his faith in the Lord, was made righteous. That in itself is the whole Bessorah, the gospel message. Abraham, by his faith in the Lord, was made righteous. So a righteous person lives in their faith, but to become righteous, you have to believe in the Lord. In the Lord. It's a phrase that occurs an awful lot in the Hebrew text, to believe in the Lord, to place your faith in the Lord. What does it mean to believe in somebody? Yeah, it's funny, I was talking with somebody, they screwed up something in their life, and so they're in a turmoil, so we were talking about it, and it comes down to the fact that, that their, their good friend has lost faith in them, because this person has a character problem. They have a problem being honest and being whole. They've compartmentalized their life in a way. And so this person doesn't know who they're talking to. Are they talking to this person and believing in what this person says? Or, or is it the other person? It's the same person, but it's a different part of that person. <laughs> to believe in somebody is to believe in who that individual is and all there is to be about them. To believe in the Lord means to believe in who he is, who God is. And they're all, all there is about him. For Abraham... He came to recognize that God was indeed going to give him descendants. And he believed in God's ability to do whatever. I think it's at that point in the book, in the, uh, book of Genesis, in the story, where he becomes an actual believer. Up to that point, he was religious. <laughs> he knew about God. But it was in Genesis 15 that he becomes an actual believer in the Lord. A lot of people know a lot about God. It's like a lot of people know all about Religious faith. But instead of trusting in the Lord, they kind of think things about the Lord. Except for operating in their faith and living in their faith, they know an awful lot of stuff about it. Big difference. Because relationship demands the intimacy of the preposition in. I know my wife because I've lived 30-something years can't remember exactly, in marriage with her. And it's demanded intimacy, honesty, transparency. Same with the Lord your God. To live in relationship with him is a recognition of living according to his way, in his box, because you know who he is, because of that intimacy of the relationship that comes with the preposition. Now, the rest of this book, he kind of rolls over, which is good. He gets it. <clears throat> and he recognizes that, that God is going to bring this judgment. And he recognizes that it's going to impact him. Take a look at the end of the chapter. Chapter, uh, the end of the book. Chapter 3, it says in verse 16. I heard and my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay comes into my bones. I tremble where I stand. Since I must wait quietly for a day of distress to come up against the people who will invade us. Though the fig tree does not blossom, and there is no yield on the vines, though the olive crop fail and the fields produce no food, the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no cattle in the stalls, yet will I triumph in Adonai. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Adonai, my Lord, is my strength. He has made my feet like a deer's and will make me walk on my high places." Do we believe that God will judge this world in which we live? You know, we're going to see a video. I want to show a quick video. This is by Al Jazeera. 
in regards to the peace process. You know, I, I had a just mentioned briefly, I was on this tour. We're going to do another one, by the way. It was a lot of fun. Never thought I would have fun with a bunch of Christians in the land of Israel, but they were really wonderful people, genuine believers, and that made it all the difference. It wasn't so much about being old, seeing old stuff as understanding the biblical text. So I'm going to actually do this again next year. I'll have information if anybody wants to join me. But uh, the one thing the tour guide kept pointing out is all this stuff that God has allowed to come forward, all this information about the ancient history of the land being discovered in the last hundred years. And she was saying all of these points, God is providing this to wake people up, to get people to think. Any thought that maybe some of the things going on, including this, whether you like them or not, could be just one more brick in what ultimately is going to be the final, the final push before the Messiah returns. And when that happens, things as we know it will not be what they will be, all right? And we have to be prepared. That's, that's what it means to live a life in faith, to live today in what, the value, what values or, or, or in priorities are important to God. Because everything hits the fan, the only thing we have left is just our trust and relationship with the Lord our God. Let's watch this video. Hailing it as a deal to bring peace to Israelis and prosperity for Palestinians, U.S. President Donald Trump presented his long-awaited Middle East proposal at the White House alongside Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. We have an obligation to humanity to get it done. This is an extraordinary voyage. Trump has proposed a four-year freeze on new Jewish settlements on Palestinian land. The plan also proposes a tunnel connecting the West Bank and Gaza and a doubling of Palestinian territory to include a capital in what it calls Al-Quds, the Arabic name for Jerusalem, where the United States would open an embassy. But in a contradictory statement, Trump declared Jerusalem Israel's capital, where a U.S. embassy already exists. Under this vision, Jerusalem will remain Israel's Undivided, very important, undivided capital. Sites holy to Muslims, Christians, and Jews would also remain under Israel's control. These ancient lands should not be symbols of conflict, but eternal symbols of peace. And as expected, Trump's 80-page plan also calls for Israeli sovereignty over the Jordan Valley that Israel's prime minister argues is necessary for security. Israel must have sovereignty in places that enable Israel to defend itself by itself. But absent from the White House announcement, Palestinian leaders, discussions on Trump's Middle East proposal broke down in 2017, following the move of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv. Trump announced he sent a letter to Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas outlining a four-year timeline for recognition and implementation of his plan. President Abbas, I want you to know that if you choose the path to peace, America and many other countries, will we, we will be there. We will be there to help you in so many different ways. And we will be there every step 
of the way. I wanted to ask you about something. Which- but in an exclusive interview with Al Jazeera, Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner said what isn't helpful to the Palestinians' future is... The Palestinian Authority would rather go and complain as opposed to come to the table and negotiate, which quite frankly shows that they're not ready to have a state. If you're ready to have a state, then you don't call for days of rage. The White House has acknowledged the dire economic conditions of Palestinians. The new plan builds on a previously announced $50 billion economic proposal with additional grants and loans implemented over the next decade, but only if reconciliation is achieved. The timing of the White House plan announcement was overshadowed by President Trump's impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate. Still, the plan is likely to be a key talking point in Donald Trump's re-election campaign. Kimberly Helkin, Al Jazeera, the White House. All right, I wanted to show that just simply to just, folks, when you look at the eschatological documents of the the biblical text, all of them talking about the ultimate, the final kind of coming of the Messiah and the, and the, uh, the culmination of the age, Everything consistently talks about how Israel is going to be in a point of crisis and God is going to intervene and save them, all right? All of this peace stuff, everything we see continues to remind us God is still wrapping things up. There's still time. He's patiently waiting, but the time is coming. Live in your box of faith. Live in your box of faith. Living for yourself, doing what you want, what's the point of that? It'll all just evaporate and be of no value whatsoever. You do not know when the Lord your God will return. But if you believe in him, you know he will because his character says he keeps his word. If you believe in Messiah Yeshua, believe in him. Know that he died for your atonement, but he's going to return to reign as king. Therefore, live in a way consistent with those truths. Let God change the way you live your life so that you might live prepared for what God's about to do. Let's close in a word of prayer. God, we thank you for the fact that you are God. We thank you for the fact that no matter what happens in our world, that ultimately you are going to bring things to where it's got to go. We pray, God, that in the midst of this whole peace thing, that there would be peace. But God, we know that only when Yeshua, our Messiah, returns, will there be real peace. In the meantime, help us, God, to live in our box of faith. Help us to truly believe in who you are, your character, your values, your priorities, and that we emulate those in the day-to-day values and priorities of our lives. We thank you for your love. We thank you for our Messiah, Yeshua's atonement. We pray all this in Yeshua's name.